And they can't go home and play video games until they figure out where the true fact is. <laughs> right? Like they're they're locked. They're locked in the room. It's like an education as escape room. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, what's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are finally going to be tackling your chosen episode, the patron chosen episode from this last round. Uh, What was it? Just the philosophy of pedagogy. Is that right? Yeah, philosophy of pedagogy, philosophy of education, something like that. Okay, and and tell people kind of how are we going to be tackling this topic? So we had talked about how we might go about this, and not, neither of us, correct me if I'm wrong, Austin, but neither of us have any formal, have done any formal work specifically in philosophy of pedagogy, or even just pedagogy in general. People who aren't um, academics might be surprised to know that you know, people who study philosophy almost always go into teaching philosophy, but almost never take a class or do any research or any training at all in actual <laughs> pedagogy, in actual like how to teach. <laughs> um, yeah, that is the truth. Yes, you, which you, is why oftentimes you hear people say, "Man, I took a philosophy class in college, and it was the worst thing ever." And it's usually because <laughs> philosophers are not good teachers. <laughs> it's not yeah. because of the subject matter. And then sometimes you're like, "Oh my god, I had the most amazing teacher." And you're like, "Yeah, it's because they probably were a decent teacher." I mean, not always, but maybe. Yeah, it, apparently you're supposed to just get the the pedagogical discipline and capacity through osmosis or something, or like yeah, fun. you read Aristotle once and then you just know how to teach. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, given that neither of us have had any formal training in that or done any uh, real research in that area, um, you know, we know some some popular conceptions on pedagogy, and we wouldn't want to do something that's really kind of one on one and basic because that would be boring as shit. And then the more interesting stuff, the kind of more like political and radical stuff uh, people know about, like Paulo Freire. But then, you know, I think we've talked about that a lot in the podcast before, and probably most of our listeners are, are aware of that stuff. So maybe like rehashing that wouldn't be super interesting or novel. So um, instead, yeah. um, I found um, a pretty popular um, analytic philosophical article on uh, pedagogy by Duncan Pritchard, who's a virtue epistemologist. The article is titled Epistemic Virtue and the Epistemology of Education. And he is applying really basically in this article um, virtue epistemology to, and we'll talk about what that is in a, in a little bit, to pedagogy. Um, and, you know, we'll maybe talk a bit about what the article states and stuff like that. And there's kind of an interesting thesis that's um, maybe a little bit uh, naive or um, you know, overly simplistic at the surface, but I think there's stuff to talk about within that. That's just which is what we do anyway on this podcast, right? We bullshit on the margins yeah. of stuff. So we have a, it's a springboard yeah. more than it is, you know, an expos like an exposition or anything like that. Yeah, and if you are like, if your eyes have glazed over with boredom by hearing the words virtue epistemologist and epistemic blah blah, blah uh, mine did too. Okay, <laughs> so. Um, I will I will be the stand-in for the audience, and um, I will try to to ask Troy questions like, "What the fuck does this mean?" Um, but I, I, I'm I'm kind of partly teasing because 
I, I told Troy in a message last night, I was like, whenever you have me read analytic philosophy papers, I both loathe them and I also end up enjoying them. So it actually is, the, the it sounds very dry, but it's actually, I think there's some really cool stuff that is being elaborated, um, even though I, I also do think it is quite a simplistic paper. But I, and, and it does make some assumptions, a lot of assumptions about things that I'm like, well, what the fuck? Okay, but we can get into all that. All this to say, uh, don't already rush off and be like, what the fuck are they? It's going to be cool. It's, it's, there's some good stuff that we're going to be able to peel apart here. I friends? Cool. Sweet. Thank you. Be patrons. Also, if you want to join in in this madness, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn, and you can contribute to future episode topics that we will talk about, where we run polls and people can vote on it, and then the one that gets the most votes wins, and so yeah, and then we have bonus episodes and bonus content. We haven't done a bonus episode in a while, but yeah, we will. There's a global pandemic going on, and yeah, that's my excuse at least. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> excuse, but I'm just going to ride that fucking train until it the wheels fall off. It know? is the global excuse, yeah. And it's still working for the most <laughs> part, so. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, so let's get into this madness, yeah? Yeah, before we do that, though, we got to do that shitty minute, yo. Yeah. That's the part of the podcast, for those who don't know, where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears in the last little bit. So, Austin, what's got you down? You know, do you have do you have like a drafts folder in your Twitter where you like you start to craft a tweet and then you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to send it, but it just sits there in your drafts in your drafts for a while. Do you have a bunch of those? Uh, I have maybe two or three, I think, in there. I just yeah, I've, about I've them, cleaned, yeah, I've cleaned mine out, but like four or five times over the last couple of weeks, I almost tweeted some variation of the same thing. That I think I ended up kind of tweeting like an obscure one about like blame, blame, blame. We just love to blame people. And really it was in reference to the coverage of the withdrawal of the troops from Afghanistan. And I just get so fucking annoyed. It's not even it's not even that I'm annoyed that people are talking about it, right? Like so many people, they were annoyed that they're like, oh, everyone is apparently a fucking um, epidemiologist uh, and then now it's like and everyone is now a geopolitical strategist and I'm like okay like in one sense I'm almost I'm almost patient and forgiving that everybody is opinionated in an online space because that's essentially what it is it's just like a, a, a democratic sounding board for everybody to vent and yeah if yeah, you don't like opinions it, you don't like social media <laughs> yeah exactly I mean it's kind of I think it's I think it's bad in some ways but another part of me has kind of like adjusted my expectations that I'm like well that's just what's gonna happen it's just gonna be a fucking cacophony of people screaming into the void and sometimes we need that as well so I'm also kind of maybe there's something therapeutic about it uh despite the fact that it also has like bad sides to it but it's not that even so much it's just that when you listen to the young turks when you listen to i don't even know what their new show is called but it used to be the rising when sagar and crystal were on that and they've got their new thing now that i can't remember what it's called i subscribe to it but whatever their new show is called um you listen to them you listen to kyle kalinsky you listen to progressive people and then you listen to mainstream media people too which i try not to do too often but you know you got to dip your toes in there every once in a while so you at least know what is happening but it's just it, – I think they think that by griping and by blaming people in the past that that's like historical analysis. But it's not. That's not a genealogical critique to be like it's Trump's fault or it's Obama's fault or it's Bush's fault or it's the fault of the – you know, it goes back to the 1970s and it's this fault. And 
I think they think they're doing historical analysis. I think they think they're doing genealogical critique, but they're not. They're just doing moralistic blaming. And it just comes across as sensationalist, like, backpatting. Like, look how fucking cool we are, and look how dumb they are, and we have the answers now. And I think they think that they're doing the, oh, well, if we can understand the causes of history, then we can somehow find what the levers, the causal levers were, that we can, like, prevent that stuff in the future. But it never comes across that way. It always just comes across like it's them, 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 we're the pure ones, they're the idiots, we're the smart ones. Because it's always just pitched at that level of, like, sensationalist Ah! And it fucking drives me crazy, man. And it drives me crazy because there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. I can sound off on my podcast here with you, and we've got you know our thousands of listeners that are going to be like, you're right, dude, and we can all sit there, and maybe we can go on our crusades of trying to get people to communicate at a higher level. But guess what? It's not going to do anything, and we're just going to keep getting dragged down into this fucking whirlpool of sensationalist drama, and we just have to deal with it, Troy. We just have to fucking bite our tongues and goddamn deal with it, and it drives me fucking mad. And yeah, I can send out my little tweet. And maybe I'll get a, a handful, a few dozen likes or something like that. But guess what? It's not going to fucking do anything. So we just got to shut the fuck up and deal with it, man. And that shit drives me goddamn crazy. So, yeah, that's my shitty minute this week. <sighs> well, let, let me play a little bit of the optimist for you, even though this is like a, a major reversal of roles here. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't think we just have to deal with it. The key would just be, look, what you're – what you know, what you and I do on this podcast, I think, hopefully, our aim is even if we don't have always have material answers to every given you know super complex problem, whether it be theoretical, practical, um, social, whatever. At least we're going to sort of do the type of analysis which allows you to stop and think, rather than you know feed into whatever the um, um, whatever like the hot take of the day is, right? Which you know. It's not all podcasts, but I think that genre of podcast, which is like the popular political lefty podcast, uh, a lot of them I like. Uh, I've found myself actually not listening to them very much lately because I also get a little sick of the the sort of dramatic postures of all of all these things. And they're not all guilty of that, certainly, um, and to varying degrees within that community. But there's a, there's a sort of like an incentive towards that kind of sensationalism. Um, rather than sort of stopping and doing think like doing the hard sort of analytical thinking and for you know partly good reason that you know the the hard analytical political thinking oftentimes like obscures the real um like immediate dangers of, of some social problems right but i mean this is kind of a Zizekian line right like actually that was more the case maybe in the past nowadays the problems actually reversed where it's constantly do 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 and usually it's do stupid ineffectual shit that doesn't actually matter and just makes you hate yourself more, right? And hate the world more. Mm. Um, instead, we got to mm. stop and think, like stop and like figure some shit yeah. out. And that's not actually the sort of lazy ivory tower stereotype. It's actually like what is needed right now. So my hope is that, you know, we provide a sort of uh, island um, in that sort of sea of chaos and sensationalism where you can stop and do some somewhat dispassionate thinking other than the shitty minute. That's where the passionate stuff comes out, right? But we get that out of yes. our system to move on to the important stuff, right? We, we see it for what it is. It's, right. it's, it's taking the dump before the rest of your day <laughs> rather than being the actual right. thing you do during your day. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think, 
I think what I worry about is I really worry about the media's influence, not like just the news media, but media, all media, all content. Um, I worry about its influence over how we think, right? I mean, this has really, I think, kind of been my primary concern for the last few years is how we think what we think, right? Rather than what we think. And I mean, this goes to the heart of my research on Sartre and the problem, what he calls seriality. In a way, we could think of seriality as being um, the sort of suppressive, dominating, serializing of how to think, act, and feel. That it's mimetic. That it isn't. There's there's very little autonomy. That there um, is like a structural container that imposes how to think, what to think. And so for me, I just I'm I get like I'm like I have an allergic reaction to. When I tap into something, whether or not then it's me just kind of over-focusing on something or whether it's like I'm actually being an astute observer, who knows. Um, but it, it's when I when I focus on something, when I latch onto something and I see it. And right now it's, it's these popular news radio shows that are so fucking popular, man. Like millions and millions of people are watching them. And then that style of, of kind of dramatic discourse is emulated all across Twitter and um, it, it does it. It affects how then we think and we buy into the panic and the dramas. And I think part of it is because, you know, we're being like anesthetized into boredom where nothing excites us. And so we have to create our own narratives. We're always telling stories. Humans are storytelling creatures. And if we're anesthetized into boredom, we're going to look for something to kind of wake us from that state. And I just worry that that this is the thing that in, like kind of elicits exciting reactions because it's something to snap us up. It's something to wake us up and, and give us some sort of chemical flows in a world that is just boring drudgery. And I'd worry about that. Like this is me getting serious now because I think that there are ways to, to deeply explore pleasure and to deeply explore pain and tragedy, you know? Um, f- fucking go see another round. We've talked about this um, on the podcast before, and don't just see it and and let it kind of entertain you because the performances are great and and because it, it makes you feel something in the moment. Yeah, it does. But like to really ponder with it and to really feel that fucking Danish tragic, that Danish tragic comedy <laughs> or comma tragedy, whatever. That movie has stuck with me you know? so much for the last few months, dude. Just to. I mean, I, I knew it was a it was great the moment I saw it, but I don't think any movie this year has stuck with me as much as that one has. Yeah, like that Nomadland really hit me. Um, I know we talked a little bit about that. I'm, you know, there's just certain things though that that they they stick with you and they they stay with you and they create different types. I don't want to get all fucking, you know. 18th century or 19th 19th century i guess liberal here but there are higher pleasures and lower pleasures <laughs> um and uh and i feel like uh yeah i feel like we don't need to just indulge in the cheap dramatic sensationalist madness i don't know yeah, yeah. and like to to back that up some more i mean i think one practical thing that i've found helpful is you know for some people it's having a healthy media diet's going to mean unplugging <laughs> because there's just yeah. you know, constant yeah, shit yeah, out yeah. there. And, and I get that, and I don't begrudge anybody for doing that. At the same time, I think there's at least somewhat of a responsibility to, um, especially if you are have any sort of um, voice that has any sort of authority, even if it's as minimal as like a podcast or whatever, 
um, to stay up to up to date on some of these things and have takes and whatnot. That said, the, your media diet is, I think, important because it you know, partly constitutes like your thought life, right? Because you're thinking about the things that you're listening to and watching and everything else. And so, you know, yeah, I, along with everybody else, have I, you know, watch dumb TV shows sometimes to kind of have a palate cleanse yeah. and, and not think too much about things. At the same time, like you don't have to listen to the podcasts that are popular and that represent your views all the time, right? Uh, for me myself, True. I found that you know, kind of drifting away from the really up to date, you know, weekly um, like political review thing, I would much rather listen to like the New Books Network, um, which if your listeners are unfamiliar, mm. the New Books Network has a like basically every academic subject under the sun. They'll have every couple of days Very basically good. an interview with some academic in the field who's just published a new book and they do an interview for about 45 minutes and they're fantastic. And it's like the leading figures in the world who have spent their lives, not the last 45 minutes looking at tweets, they spent their lives working on an academic subject and written a book on it and you can hear their interview about it and it's fantastic and you can read old books, right? Whether it be from you know, 20 yeah. years ago or 300 years ago. And they're going to have insight that's probably going to be a lot like more um, sort of tied to what's important in our own contemporary scene than the contemporary shit that you might read on social media <laughs> or on the Atlantic or whatever else, right? So all yeah. that all that stuff is not escapism, right? It's only escapism if you have a certain posture with regard to it, right? Which is I need I need a different thing to think about than my current circumstances, which is you know okay and and. Um, and fits and starts but you can also read that stuff watch that stuff listen to that stuff in a way that you sort of you know dialectically engage with it and its relevance to the contemporary world and that's i think a much more healthy way of of sort of developing a proper um, media diet than just i have to have all the contemporary stuff that's popular and that everyone's talking about and i have to absorb it all right now i just figured it out in my in my in my Stalinist utopia, uh, I'm going to have a minister of media nutrition. And we are going to do massive studies on what is the appropriate balanced media diet. Just like we have all these different <laughs> diet theories for like physical nutrition. You know, you can't just eat white sugar all day. But that's what, that's what, that's what like, I don't know what's white sugar. I don't know watching like extreme extreme XC. <laughs> was that what it was called? M. That's like white sugar. Now I fucking love that show. Okay, we need that shit. Give me give me some fucking dessert. Okay, but that should be like you know five percent of your diet. What's um, what's like the, what's again, like o- you, only listening to the Chapo Network? Is that like just like yeah, that's like, like downing Red Bulls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And then and then and then you can't just eat fucking vegetables all day cuz that's just boring. That would be just like listening to the new books network <laughs> all day all the time. You can't fucking just get micronutrients all the time. You know, you got to have a little bit you got to throw in a little bit of spicy sauce on there or a little bit of like honey into to make a nice glaze if you're going to make a stir fry with the veggies, right? Those are the great so basketball you gotta have podcasts. A, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you got to listen to 
you know, a podcast where they're doing intelligent stuff, but they've got like a nice gloss on it that makes it entertaining and fun. So that's like a nice like sauce that you get with the nutrients, right? So you got to have that. And then, you know, you got to have like your morning green smoothie, which is like listening to, I don't know, the economic, uh, an economic podcast with Richard Wolf or like Doug Henwood or something like that. You know, mm. you got to get that to kind of get your juices flowing. You know, it's, they got like good music stuff on there. You know, there's like a little bit of wit, but at the same time, it's hefty and hearty and it's fibrous. So it'll like, you know, catch, get you flowing in for the day like I feel like this is what we need you need to be intentional about your media consumption diet and I'm going to figure out what exactly is the best media diet that's going to be my next project after my next project after my next project okay <laughs> Wait, so, so just be so, patient <laughs> so with this minister of, of media uh, diet nutrition yeah. would they like write you prescriptions yeah. for you need to you need to go back and watch Bill and Ted because you're seemingly very melancholy yeah well, there's gonna be there's gonna be a multi-pronged rollout. Like some of it's going to be prescription based, absolutely. But then, of course, some of it's also going to be just the way that you know uh, diet fads now or new diet routines now get spread. We're gonna have to have a really strong media presence ourselves so that we can get into the cultural zeitgeist. So we're gonna have to have an influencer strategy where influencers are touting our diet, and so you know it's gonna be a battle because then there's gonna be different variations. There's going to be the paleo people and the keto people, and, you know, everyone's going to have their own version of it. But there's going to be a baseline, you know, just like we have, like, that sort of food pyramid baseline. We're going to have, like, a food pyramid, and that's going to be the start, and then from there, we're going to kind of continually refine it. But we got to have to have a multi-pronged strategy, a multi-pronged rollout strategy. Yeah. I, I think that in this analogy, to extend it beyond what it can capably bear, um, I would have the gluten allergy in the sense that I think like gluten-filled products would be like the Slate podcasts and the general culture podcasts, right? Which are just, you know, like, <laughs> like, like sin, what do you call it? Like viewing all of culture at once rather than like deep diving into something specific. And they just like gab a lot. Mm. I think one of them from Slate's even called like the gab something or other. That's the shit. The gab fest. Yeah, that's the shit. The I, cultural gab fest. Yeah, I'm allergic. I'm allergic, dude. I used to listen to that. I used to listen to Slate's political political gab fest and their culture gab fest. I think that's what they were called. Yeah, I used to listen to those all the time, like back in the old, back in like 2010. That was like my jam. Yeah, can't that do it. That was my shit. I can't do it. Give me, give me like understand. 90 minutes on um, in-depth X's and O's and basketball analytics over that any day. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's not keep the people listening or keep them waiting any longer. Let's jump into the patron chosen episode, The Philosophy of Education, motherfuckers. All right, (laughs) Troy, you tee us up here. Yeah, so I guess maybe it would help first to really briefly talk about what virtue epistemology is. Um, Not to go too deep into it because I don't think it's necessary. And also, I don't just, you know, like, you know, cards... Uh, face up here i don't do work in epistemology at all um not because i don't like it not because i don't think that it's important um i just don't do it it's not my area that said yeah if you've ever heard the terms social epistemology or virtue epistemology these are sort of uh kind of somewhat new and by by new i mean like in the philosophical philosophical sense of new which means like less than 50 years old (laughs) right so if it's and i'm just gonna say if you have heard of those terms you too might be a philosophy yeah, nerd. Probably, yeah, probably. Okay, There's no other way you would have heard them. <laughs> uh, although maybe you're like you work in the English department because that would be that would be somebody who might uh, dabble in some of this stuff or be aware at least of some of these terms. So really basically, um, virtue epistemology is just a view. Uh, Ernest Sosa 
what in the 80s was sort of the, the first one to develop this kind of view, although it's really a family of views more than a specific view. Oh, by the way, I, I always like think of him as being Edgar Sosa. Do you remember Edgar Sosa, the point guard at Louisville back like maybe 10, 12 years ago when they were a pretty good team? He was a short like uh, I remember Dominican Sammy Sosa. Guy. Yeah, not no relation. No, I remember Sammy Sosa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But I, I always call him Edgar Sosa, so I had to like write down, make sure you fucking say Ernest Sosa and not sound like an asshole. Uh, as well as Duncan yeah. Pritchard, who wrote this article that we um, are reading today, and Linga Zabzewski, um are some of the foremost thinkers here. And the basic idea is just considering epistemology, which for those who are unaware is this, in philosophy is the study of knowledge. So understanding what knowledge is. There's all these classical problems associated with trying to understand what knowledge is. Like for instance, this may be a little bit helpful as like a one-on-one type thing, and then we'll move on from that and never do it again. Um, there's this issue hmm. about knowledge um, being defined sort of commonsensically as justified true belief. And Edmund Gettier, who was a philosopher in the middle of the 20th century, sort of wrote a very short, like one and a half, two page paper where he just showed with some examples that justified true belief is actually not necessarily knowledge. With some really complicated out of the wall examples. You want to look at that stuff, you can Google it. And so the rest of 20th century epistemology was basically just how do we resolve the Gettier problem, right? These cases where justified true belief, which we think should be knowledge, isn't necessarily sufficient enough to be knowledge. Um, and so all of epistemology, epistemology was about that. They're talking about like, do you have knowledge if you're driving through a rural town with a bunch of fake barns? And like, if there are a bunch of sheep, but then one of them's a fake sheep, right? But you have true beliefs about the actual sheep. Is that actually knowledge given there's fake sheep around? If you have a $20 bill surrounded by counterfeit $20 bills and you know that the $20 bill is a real $20 bill, do you actually know it since it's surrounded by fake $20 bills? That's the kind of like ridiculous shit, the stuff that I'm sure you hate and I also don't like at all. <laughs> that dominated. You get me, man. Yeah. <laughs> you get me. <laughs> that shit dominated 20th century analytic philosophy, uh, analytic epistemology. And the social <laughs> epistemologists and virtual epistemologists wanted to sort of move on from that and, and have a much more, more broad and encompassing view of epistemology by considering it in the case of virtual epistemology as a capacity or a virtue or a, uh, a part of someone's agency. So epistemology is not just the sort of conceptual analysis of the concept knowledge, but is instead looked at in this more holistic way, sort of in you know, a somewhat more Aristotelian sense, and you see the connection there with the virtues, uh, as being an actual intellectual uh, capacity that one can exhibit agentially, more or less so agentially, given their capacities. And that might all sound like gobbledygook, and that's totally fine. We're not going to talk about that part of it anymore. But that's basically the uh, the gist of where this whole thing started. And in this essay, Pritchard is applying this idea to specifically education by distinguishing um, knowledge from understanding, which I actually think is a pretty helpful uh, um, distinction to make. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay. So here was my thing. Um, so he starts talking about how like the goal of education, I really, I, I actually like these, some of the terminology that he sets up because then it just, he like uses it consistently throughout the paper and it's only really like seven 
jargony terms, right? Whereas like the papers that I'm accustomed to reading, it's like a thousand jargony terms. It's seven non-jargony kinda... terms, yeah. Yeah, exa- exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, um, you know, he talks about the difference between cognitive achievement and cognitive success. Well, we'll say success and achievement um, since we'll start with the lesser of the two. And um, that the goal of education should be cognitive achievement, and this relates to understanding more, um, because in cognitive achievement, what you have is a sense of cognitive autonomy, where an individual actually achieves something. You know, they actually um, use their faculties of, or, or the faculty of the understanding to be able to solve a problem or answer a question or something along those lines. Whereas cognitive success doesn't necessarily. Um, speak to understanding because it could just be as he says you know you could be in a friendly environment and somebody feeds you information and um, you have knowledge but you haven't really achieved anything because it's much more of a passive rather than active engagement and um, that it would be better if we could equip individuals to have this cognitive autonomy so that regardless of if they're in a friendly environment or an unfriendly environment, that they would be better equipped to kind of solve problems or to um, tackle tasks or something like that. And I thought that was actually quite interesting to, to think in those terms, right? Okay, like, like, yeah, I too think that that is probably an important component of education. Before we start thinking, though, about like the societal responsibilities of education or... Um, like, like, what are the containers that would dictate and determine what better achievements would be? Like, he's kind of just speaking in a very sort of formal sense. I guess what I would, I would kind of want to just get a little bit technical for a second or kind of like peel back just a little bit on something that he was talking about when he was talking about, um, uh, and I think this is just really more just like a question that I, I have. He was talking about how, um, like cognitive achievement or understanding isn't just simply knowledge of things, right? So like if you, if I, if I, if I tell you right now, you know, like, um, I used this example last night. I was actually, uh, I, um, just having a, a quick little convo about this and I used this. I was like, okay, if I tell you my mom's name is Ginger, right? Like I've just given you information and now you have this information and now you have the knowledge that my mother's name is Ginger, right? Um, What's the difference between that and then me saying, um, okay, do you know my, my mother's heritage, like her cultural heritage, her family heritage, right? And then you going and doing the research and then digging it up and then coming back and being like, okay, so your mother's uh, X percent Welsh and um, a little bit of Native American and then you know there's a tiny bit of Irish back in there. Like what's the difference between those two? He seems to kind of assume that there's a qualitative difference whereas I wonder if there isn't maybe an argument to be made that it's a difference of degree that the person who has understanding and that can um, that has the cognitive abilities stored up so that they can um, reach understanding through cognitive achievement, is it not merely that they have a, a memory, a storehouse of knowledge, um, of information that they then can deploy in connection more so than another person? So that, that really what you have between the two isn't so much a difference of 
kind, like he seems to presume, but it's actually just a difference of degree. And I wonder, is is that true? And what is the qualitative difference there? Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe. Let me let me. Say. And now I know, I know, I know. I'm also being quite reductive, like an information scientist and shit like that, and like philosophers of information would probably make a similar argument to what I'm talking about, right? That it's all just about like information, and then. Um, how information is accumulated and processed and deployed and that there is no ultimate distinction because we're on like a flat plane of existence. So I'm kind of making a monist argument here, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So that latter part, I don't know. I got to think about that, but just to the, to the former issue without getting into the uh, information science area, maybe you can say more about that in a second and I can um, think more about it. But I mean, I don't think that, I don't think you're wrong at all for, for thinking of it as a uh, difference more in degree than kind, or at least the sense in which it's a difference in kind insofar as it's a, a difference of a major difference in degree. And here's how I might couch it is something like, um, so the issue with cognitive, mere cognitive success, right? So it's sort of just having a cognitive um, success without anything else. Like the example he gives in the paper, uh, which is a ridiculous analytic uh, philosopher example <laughs> is a child who goes on the internet and uh, discovers that three is the square root of nine, right? Um, right. Now, you might figure this out by, I don't know, um, going to a random website that just happens to say that, like it's a, I don't know, a children's website that's not even doing math in any way or any has any educational uh, sort of intention to it, but just happens to state that, right? Which isn't a very authoritative source, right? Um, that might be like a mere cognitive success. Like the child comes to believe that three is the square root of nine, but given uh, both the environment and the cognitive capacities, intellectual capacities of the child is merely a cognitive success, not being really an achievement, let alone understanding. And so the important difference is that when you get to the high level, the part where he's actually going to call it a straight up virtue and intrinsically good or intrinsically valuable, which is the thing I wanted to, ask you about because I wasn't sure I thought about that um, is that understanding happens um, and strong cognitive achievement happens. That's the phrase he uses for it. When you come to a cognitive achievement through your uh, intellectual capacities, right? And that's usually evidenced by overcoming obstacles to, um, to not to actual understanding. So in the same way that like, how do you test how uh, fast could someone can run? Well, you put fucking sh- like shit in the way they have to leap over, <laughs> like in the Olympics, right? Like that's yeah. how you find out, you know, how fast someone is or something like that. Like you give them obstacles and then they 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 have to push their capacities to the limit, and that's how you see how how like actualize the potential capacities that they have inculcated through you know virtue development or whatever it is excellence development. Mm. Um, so the idea there is just that. You have understanding, you have the virtue um, associated with knowledge when the knowledge comes through your capacities and through there being not merely causal, right? It's not just that your capacities cause the knowledge, but it actually happens through the exercise of the capacity, right? So that's when you really have um, uh, like the, the utmost of knowledge or what he calls understanding as opposed to like a mere cognitive success. And so it really is a kind of difference of degree. Here, maybe let's wrap, wrap this up here. I'm getting to your point. In that yeah. even a mere cognitive success has to have some level of cognitive intellectual capacity, right? You have to be able to right. believe something to believe that three is the square root of nine. So even the child, 
even though they, they have merely knowledge, mere knowledge in that instance, they do have like, they're exercising some intellectual capacity, like the bare intellectual capacity to believe things that they hear, right? And so understanding is similar to that and that it's, it's exercising of the same capacity, but just to its limit. Whereas the mere cognitive success associated with the child who believes that three is the square root of nine is the same capacity exercised minimally, right? Yeah. So I feel like there's so much going on here. My mind is all over the place. So, okay, I'm just going to try and try and get to all the things. And I, I should have been writing it down and I just didn't have anything to write with. And so we'll see if I can remember. Um, okay. So for the first thing, and this is in no order, it's just thoughts. The first thing I'm thinking is, okay, so the child that has just mere cognitive success because they can go on a website, they, like you just said, they also have to have certain other skills to learn how to like trust information that's coming at them to, um, to be able to receive information, to be able to process data as it comes to them over a computer screen. Um, there's also a sense in which it seems that there is a responsibility of the environment to um, be trustworthy. Right. So one of the others, there's, so there's two things going on here. One, there's a, there's, there's always relationships happening here, right? Which is another thing I want to think mm -hmm. of. I want to kind of take like a real dialectical or, or relational approach here. There's a relationship between the environment that the person is thrown into and then that person's um, engagement with that environment. So in one sense, there's like a responsibility that is placed onto the individual person, it seems, um, that is rewarded in cognitive achievement that is not rewarded in cognitive success and for Pritchard that's where the virtue comes in because the person is being rewarded in their enactment of the responsibility of their relation to the environment that they have somehow um, acceded to a certain level by um, using their by using their capacities right which I wonder if that is in a sort of like very sort of like Western individualist, like strong man, like you have achieved and you have been granted your skills and you have employed them um, in this problem solving. Therefore, you get a pat on the back and that's virtuous. I wonder if that's so that's one thing I'm thinking. Well, let's talk uh, about that because that, that's exactly what I'm is, thinking too. Oh, yeah, go ahead. That's exactly what I'm thinking. And I think, okay. you know, um, I haven't done a lot of work in this area, but I do know that virtue epistemologists and, and like the larger tent of social epistemologists really don't ever want to do that. So I think we can be kind of charitable here and say, look, this is the school of thought that's always talking about um, social responsibility in league with epistemology and that epistemology is not just a thing that happens between your mind and information, right? It's always embedded in a, in a social context and, and bears, especially for the virtue epistemologists, these normative relations of responsibility. Um, between individual and society, mm. society, individual, individuals, other individuals within society, all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, for me, that's the interesting stuff, right? Is not mm. just sort of delineating, as, as Pritchard hints at in the essay, what are epistemic, epistemically friendly versus epistemically unfriendly contexts, which are pretty easy to, to figure out, at least as a conceptually, right? Like the, the website that just yeah. happens to say that three is the square root of nine is kind of an epistemically neutral, maybe leaning unfriendly, a website that's <laughs> full of mathematical inaccuracies, except for that one, is like the epistemically unfriendly one. And then, you know, like a, a math yeah. website developed by the 
you know, association for math professors or whatever the fuck is going to be the epistemically friendly one, right? Like that, that's pretty easy to delineate. Right. But then you put that in the real world and it's much more messy and complex, right? Since everything is, is some degree of leaning, leaning unfriendly to massively unfriendly, <laughs> epistemically speaking. Um, that gets... Well, and his argument then is though is if we can give people if we can give pupils the cognitive ability um, to more often or better reach cognitive achievement, then they will be able to perform better in unfriendly environments, right? I mean, so that that they'll be able to, right? Isn't that one of the arguments? He yeah, makes? but I think maybe you're 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 taking that to imply something that I don't think he's going to ever uh, claim. Which is like that's the the main point of of pedagogy and education is to make like the the buffest intellectually buffest individuals you can. Um, okay. Which I, I agree that would be a very bad outcome um, and not at all what I think like a, a social epistemologist would want to probably say about this stuff because the I mean and, okay. and I agree with you like this is just means that he hasn't gotten to the important stuff yet, right? This is like a, a preamble mm. that he's just trying to explain a conceptual difference between understanding and, and mere cognitive success, right? Uh, and so he's kind of yeah. leaving out some really important stuff, which, I mean, again, may, maybe he doesn't think this, but I'm just kind of trying to be charitable here in that the really yeah. important stuff, I think, and this is kind of what I, I wanted to talk with you about a bit, was what what are the responsibilities that societies have to make yeah. epistemically friendly contexts for individuals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, there's, there's some degree of like, you know how like there's this um, terrible interpretation of Kant where Kant's like the only time you do a morally good thing is when you don't want to do it, but you do it anyway. <laughs> right. So like, <laughs> right, right, and, right, and right. People talk about that. It's, that's Kant's unit. It's so absurd because it, it's it's so obviously open to a reductio where it's like, well, if yeah. that was the case, then you shouldn't <laughs> be virtuous. Because if you had virtues, <laughs> you would want to do good things, and then you would never actually do good yeah. things. So you have to not want yeah. to do them to actually do good things. So you should be vicious. Like you should never, like try and be a better person, right? Except in the moment when you have to do something, and then you do the right thing, even though you don't want to do it. So you should develop all these bad moral traits to overcome them in the end and show how you know virtuous you are and that's like such an obviously absurd view kant has a whole book on virtue <laughs> right so he did not think yeah. that very clearly it's kind of a similar thing here right where it's like if pedagogy is about making intellectually buff students right then we should have the most epistemically unfriendly contexts possible like we should only ever give them websites where one thing is true and everything else is false like some ridiculous game show right and they have to figure it out and they can't go home and play video games until they figure out where the true fact is right? <laughs> like they're they're locked they're locked in a room it's like an education as escape room <laughs> <laughs> exactly and that's so obviously absurd in the same way the Kantian view is right so that can't be the view it can't be the case uh. No, that, that we that epistemically unfriendly contexts are good because that's where you get to exercise your understanding or like develop understanding to the best of your ability. Clearly, that's false. Yeah. So the the charitable view I think would be, and he doesn't ever say this, but I think this would be kind of where it was implied, is there's some degree of responsibility that societies have to provide epistemically friendly contexts to the degree that I don't know, like. We need them because, look, no individual is able to know as much as 
an epidemiologist does about a virus that's in the midst of in the midst of a pandemic um, with regard to you, right? So we can't expect everybody to understand in this in this like high degree of understanding um, about COVID nineteen. There has to be a level of trust with leading epidemiologists, right? And so when that trust mm. doesn't exist, you there's a sort of to use a term that um, Miranda Fricker has popularized, an epistemic injustice has occurred, right? Mm. Where there's a sort of normative relation that doesn't obtain that ought to in a society. Um, and so like that that's the kind of thing you would want to talk about rather than just like blaming dumb people for having dumb views about viruses. Okay. This is great because I think this is – I think – so I I think my my reaction was I think the article is written more I think you're right. I think the background of the article is okay cool. So how can we as educators as a society um really spend a lot of time differentiating between a, a friendly and an unfriendly environment and how does that relate to um uh knowledge versus the development of understanding. I think I think that's that's I think that's the big picture that was being aimed at but in the content like when you actually drill down to what he spends more time talking about he talks a lot about cognitive autonomy talks about cognitive success cognitive achievement and the differences between those things so i took away from it more that oh this guy's clearly maybe advocating that what we need to do is just create these little buff buff superhuman uh students right so that's what i was thinking and i was like hmm but I love what you just brought up because I think that even if that's not what Pritchard is advocating, I think so much of the popular discursive landscape does operate in that way. And maybe that's why I was so sensitive to it because I do think – and this really goes into what my shitty minute was too – is I think that we're so accustomed to thinking in terms of like individuals who are individually responsible for their own knowledge. And if you don't trust the right resources – i.e. if you don't trust science, then you're just a fucking idiot, right? And that's your fault. You're the fucking idiot. You're the dummy. Like, you're the one that is listening to fake news. Uh, you're the one that uh, goes to the wrong things. It's your fault. You, 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 me, me, me. I'm the good one, though, because I, I have honed my skills of <laughs> rational thought. And my concern is, is that that comes with a really heavy, like, moral position, Right? And I think that's what I was kind of was was wondering is um, is do we not see this in especially let's think about like you know anti-vaxxers versus you know like masks don't do anything and there's so much information slash misinformation that's being spread um, that I do wonder if we can kind of apply a lot of the stuff that 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 Pritchard is talking about in this article about like how do you even learn anything like what is the difference between knowledge then we might even say false knowledge and then understanding and how can we then apply this not just to a classroom setting in the sense of like formal education but also even into kind of just cultural education more broadly yeah i mean this is where i'm going to get on my hegelian soapbox and say that autonomy is not Autonomy is not sort of instantiated when you become fully capable individually and in and of yourself to achieve some end, right? That's sort of like the libertarian notion of autonomy, right? Which is self-sufficiency mm. to some degree. The Hegelian view is that that's actually almost completely indeterminate, 
um, at that point. You haven't even developed Bayan like the first stage, let alone become autonomous. Okay. Autonomy is actually when you become socially inscribed in a determinate social role, right? That you find meaning in and that also recognizes your own good in the same uh, moment that you recognize it as being good, right? So it's this mutual sort of dependency and co I, I like the term co-constitutive relation between yeah. the individual and the community. And that's actually kind of paradoxically, although I don't think it's really a paradox at all, when autonomy is achieved, right? It's a sort of embedding of the mm. individual in the social um, in a uh, co-constitutive and mutually affirmative way. Mm. That's autonomy. That's the Hegelian view of what autonomy actually is, right? So if you think about cognitive autonomy, Within that sphere, and obviously, I don't think Pritchard's going at anywhere that le- anywhere near that level of like you know theoretical detail no. of that stuff. But I think this this like Not meshes fairly well into that as like a moment of that view. Then you could see um, something like you know trying to figure out like what are the what are the responsibilities that educational systems and societies at large, which develop educational systems within them, have to young people as far as developing their autonomy, not in the sense of making them individually, intellectually self-sufficient buff students who can do epidemiology uh, in the morning and then can uh, like kill all their food in the afternoon to like use a bizarro like Marxist phrase, right? And then like uh, build their house in the evening. Geopolitics in the evening. evening. (laughs) Um, Not that at all, because obviously nobody could do that, right? Except for Noam Chomsky. so instead, it's developing a sort of just social a set of social relations where individuals can do the things that they're actually good at and that they find intrinsically valuable, and that they can actually be able to trust the other people in the society who do the other important work to do their work in such a way that they can be marginally aware of what's going on there, right? Um, and, and rely upon the epistemically friendly context to do the rest of the work of justification for their knowledge, right? Since we can't have full understanding of literally everything. So in that sense, you're talking really about like justice and and political philosophical concerns at this point, not just epistemology, which is what's, you know, interesting to me Mm. is that this stuff really gets down to the social political philosophy in the end, right? Once you kind of resolve some of these conceptual, do some of this conceptual analysis, then it gets down to the brass tacks where you start talking about, well, how do you how do you sort of develop the proper contexts where for, for individuals in the areas in which they're experts, you want them to at least occasionally engage with epistemically unfriendly contexts so they can develop their their virtues to the maximal degree, right? In the same way that a, a Olympic, you know, track and field person is going to jump over hurdles and whatnot. Um, but the rest of the time, they have to be able to live in a social environment where they don't have to have, they don't have to rely on um or they don't have to exercise their virtues within unfriendly context. They can rely upon other people to do the work for them. And they can be, you know, reflective and critical, but for the most part, like trusting. And if you don't have those sort of social relations, which we clearly do not, right? Um, then yeah. you have a justice problem. And that justice problem isn't just about the fact that um, individuals believe stupid things about vaccines and masks. It goes down to the level of propaganda that exists in our media ecosystem, the failures of public and private education in the country, and then ultimately all that comes down to like capitalism, right? Because all that stuff is fostered yeah. by the fact that there's a profit motive for all of these things, for weaponizing 
um, like cognitive uh, inefficiencies that we have uh, for the sake of super rich mm. people. And it's, it, that's like a, you know, a vulgar Marxist analysis, but it's, it's, I don't know, it seems basically true to me that that's a way of explaining the level of injustice that we have. And it's so much better. That's a, that's a moral framework that I'm talking about. It's like a normative yeah. framework, but it's not moralizing, right? Which is the kind of thing when, when you talked about a minute ago about how the sort of moral view of um, pro-maskers, pro-vaccine people being like, I believe science. I have the sign outside my door that says I believe science and stuff like that, right? And if you don't, then you're a dummy. That's 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 right. moralizing, right? In the sense that it's like naively um, focusing mm-hmm. on moral issues. What we need is a better moral framework, right? Like a justice framework, I would think. Um, that's still yeah, talking about yeah. normative issues, but doing so in a way that's actually fruitful for thinking about how to improve things rather than just calling people dummies. Yeah. So do you think then that what we should take away from this is, 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 or one of the things we could take away from this is that we should really spend a lot of time trying to develop, you know, friendly versus unfriendly environments. And then if that's the case, then what is a friendly versus an unfriendly environment? Is a friendly environment merely one where information in, this goes back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, a difference of degree and kind. Let's say a friendly environment, is it one where, um, it is a stress-free, relaxing, inviting, welcoming environment where information is easily accessible so that individuals can um, consume that information and then develop better cognitive abilities so that they can be more inclined towards understanding and cognitive uh, cognitive achievement like is that a friendly environment is it like and then the friendly environment would also include like um healthy physical stuff so like healthy nutrition so that their brains aren't overloaded on sugar or um you know not being overstimulated by you know red bull media um so that you have like you know <laughs> you're just kind of sensationalized and, and over over dramatic like what what is what is the cultivate like how do we cultivate the friendly environment well that's and then let me just and then of course there's gonna be a spectrum right let me just say a thing about that because i want your opinion on this because it seems to me like yeah it even ideally i don't think you would want entirely epistemically friendly environments because that (laughs) because there's no challenge lead to what like here's the dialectical move right but you need some level of negation right because that does spur are you going to go on a rant against safe spaces now no 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 not at all um i mean if 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 the whole society was a safe space then that would seem to be a problem right yeah Uh, yes yes (laughs) yeah so if if everything was maximally epistemically friendly then where you know like you just did your work and then um, everyone else did their own work, and then you all just worked together as mm. cogs in a giant machine, like a Borg machine or whatever, uh, like a collective, con- you know, collective consciousness. Then that's—I mean, maybe like in some sci-fi world, you could come up with like a just system where that works. But it seems to me like not only would that be ripe for abuse, um, maybe you could like make it so perfect that no one would even have the thought about <laughs> abusing it. That seems impossible to me. Um, but even regardless of, of like that factor, it seems like you wouldn't really be able to fully develop this like Hegelian notion of, of cognitive autonomy, which is like with embedded within a social system, um, without some degree of unfriendly contexts, right? Like you need some negation to prime the pump there. So it seems like there, there isn't this what tech utopians want? Tech utopians want this friendly environment, right? <laughs> Maximally friendly environment, like, that- yeah. Yeah. Just have all the yeah, information the downloaded internet. into your brain. Yeah. 
yeah, like the fucking internet is supposed to be the maximally friendly environment, isn't it? Like when you talk to, when you listen to people that are like, but it's so amazing because we have so much access to all the information in all the world. And I think they think that it's a friendly environment, but I would actually be like, well, actually it's a fucking hostile environment. No, it's, yeah, though. it's awful. Not, not, I mean, obviously there's like the, the abuse <laughs> factors of it, right? Where it's mostly misinformation, but even ignoring that you don't actually develop any understanding in perfectly maximally friendly epistemic environments, right? You're only ever having mere cognitive successes. So we wouldn't want maximally mm. friendly epistemic environments. Like that would not be a good thing in the end, even if like well, immediately then, it might be nice. Then 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 maybe then maybe a friendly environment entails obstacles. Yeah. Right. Or like a maybe not so like a, um not necessarily that friendly environment does, but like there has to be some give and take between the friendly and the unfriendly environments. Like there have to be elements of unfriendliness that are kind of baked in to make like a, a just um, epistemic mm. social system or whatever, right? Yeah. So like there's a you, – you have a school that's very welcoming, but there's like a, a an evil nun at the door <laughs> that's going to smack you with a ruler. Like you need a little bit of that. Is that – yeah. Yeah. If we if everything was was perfect and just and moral, <laughs> except for the mean, uh, bitchy nun, then like from Catholic school. Yeah. Then damn, everything would be perfect, right? Yeah. That's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I do. I wonder. I wonder. So then, I wonder what can we say? Like, if we kind of make this even more explicitly political. So then what would be like if we were if, if we were the ministers of education, um, what would be the program? Like, obviously, there's I, I don't know when this this when was this article written? Um, I don't know, actually. Because it also makes me think that it was like directly 2013. Um, uh, yeah, it makes it makes me feel like it's directly like um, contradicting the whole um popularity from the early 2000s till i don't know when it got removed but of like standardized testing which was you know no child left mm -hmm. behind and then in the uk it was every child matters right and so like pritchard is clearly like arguing against that style of education because that seems to be just mere cognitive success if you're just teaching to the test you're just giving them information you're just giving them yeah. um, bits of info so that they can pass which is not understanding whereas Pritchard would definitely want to be like no 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 that's not that's not virtuous right so then what would be the political program like if we were to if we were the ministers of education here and we're saying okay we got Pritchard's paper and we're going to kind of build out on that plus everything that we've said like what is the program that we put together you know what I mean yeah I like that you bring up like how do we design I like that you bring up standardized testing because if you think about like what are the program that sees standardized tests as being like the cure, what are they afraid of? Well, they're afraid of like failure. They're afraid of there ever being a cognitive mm. failure that a student does because those are inherently bad. And the cognitive successes are the inherently good thing. So let's maximize those, right? It's like a, it's a quantificational mm. and really like utilitarian kind of approach, an empiricist approach to this thing, right? Where it's like, just like maximize, optimize the number of cognitive successes in the same way you would want to optimize like pleasurable experiences or, you know, uh, preference satisfaction or whatever if you're utilitarian and then minimize the yeah. cognitive failures, right? If you can just do that, everything will work out in the end. 
um, towards the good or whatever. Yeah. And that's just so obviously wrong for all the reasons we talked about already, right? But then I think that the the opposite approach that we're talking about here would be like, actually, cognitive failures are sometimes really good because they're instructive. Like you almost need to fail in order to really come to a level of understanding. So like taking sort of maybe left field pedagogical approaches and allowing students to have autonomy in, in sort of engaging in, in texts and, and doing things the way they want to do or that they find like immediately interesting and valuable, right? Um, rather than what the lesson plan says or what the, you know, um, the curriculum says you have to do with it. Even if that goes nowhere and ends up being sort of a waste of time in the sense of you don't get anything like materially out of it, that could be really good because that's like an actual exercise of the student's autonomy. Again, not in the purely individualistic sense, but in like the social sense of together with other people engaging with a text or with an idea or with whatever it is in a, in a new and unique way. And even a quote unquote cognitive failure in that vein could be a good thing. And not even merely instrumentally, but by the sense that it sort of exercises the the virtue, the intellectual virtue of the student, even if it ends up with a cognitive failure in the sort of immediate um, context. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, like just just to kind of like more personally, I rely on cognitive failure every day <laughs> so that I can learn. That, that that's like, the I motto of this podcast, shit, actually. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking about Deleuze a little bit. So Pritchard makes this distinction between knowledge and understanding. Deleuze makes a distinction between like you know a dogmatic image of thought, um, what we, we could call it like representational knowledge, and then the idea of being shocked to thought. And I think that a shock to thought is basically, in a way, an encounter with a failure, hmm. right? It's an encounter with excess. Now he probably wouldn't use the word failure because it probably has too much of a connotation of like the negative or lack or something like that. But let's say that it's like something excessive, something that is beyond, something that is outside of your framework of knowledge, right? Whereas knowledge is generally related to some sort of representation, like like a mimetic representation of the already familiar um, in some packaged or repackaged form. Whereas a shock to thought um, or what we might think of in, in our terms as cognitive failure necessitates an encounter with something that is beyond us. Right. And then what that induces in us is at least for somebody like me, who is a because I have uh, established a certain repertoire of cognitive abilities that makes me want to that's a challenge to overcome. You know, philosophy begins with puzzlement. It begins with wonder. Mm. Right. And it's fuck. OK, how can I overcome this? How can I what what can I learn from this? What can I take from this? OK, I failed here. I didn't do it well here. Where did I fail? How did I fail? And then I want to go into all of that. Right. I want to be like, okay, I, I saw this thing. I thought it was this. Oh, it wasn't that because I went here and I did that. I tried this. I thought it was this. Um, I tried to put this into that. That didn't work. So now I know in the future that didn't work under these conditions. But then what that doesn't mean is that if I go this way, go that way, and put this into that, that it'll never work in relation to something similar. It just means that this specific – and so you can start refining, right? This specific challenge, this specific problem um, was not best dealt with in the way that I had brought my tools to it so then I can learn and I can relearn and I can and I can perpetually kind of develop if you will a really robust tool set for how to kind of navigate through the world and I think that I'm constantly doing that always right there's always like encounter and familiarity or encounter with familiarity but like an encounter with the unfamiliar even with the things that we think are familiar you know like that's one of the great things that I think phenomenology has 
instilled in me is this um, perpetual uncertainty about what it is that I am perceiving in front of me <laughs> or even what it is that I'm conceiving in my mind, right? That there's always something beyond. And I think that that, that is one, um, an exciting thing that we should encourage people to pursue. But two, I think that necessitates what we might call failure, right? And we need that in a learning environment. And we shouldn't punish people for failures. We should rather continue to figure out how to equip ourselves um, and our children in particular who are so fragile in their development and vulnerable in their development. We should equip them to to find joy in those challenges rather than beating them down when they fail. Because you see this so much in adults then. Adults take it into their personal relationships and into their business relationships mm. and into their more intellectual engagements that they're afraid to fail. They're afraid to say something. They're afraid to do something because they're afraid that it's gonna, they're going to be guilty. They're going to be shamed because they're going to be wrong. But let's beyond good and evil here. If we can be beyond good and evil in this sense, then we can kind of transcend that 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 kind of like moral castigation that would censure somebody or that would like judge them to the kind of like ash heap um, of Gehenna just because they got a fucking math problem wrong or because they said something wrong in a relationship or because they voted in a in a way that was wrong. Right? We can. I'm. I'm maybe that one's maybe a little bit more kind of sensitive, but. We, we should allow people to kind of um, be able to, to engage failure or to engage with the excessive so that they don't become so gun-shy in the future, so that they don't just become um, too shameful, debt-burdened, I would say, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I love that, dude. Um, I think that's, like, exactly on point. And just the very idea that, we could see, you know, quote unquote failures as not really being failures, but you know, opportunities to grow and to learn. People talk a lot about education being yeah. more like that. It's never actually put into practice because you can't quantify it in such a way that can no. actually give people promotions, right? Um, but then also it's important for everything outside of the ed educational and pedagogical sphere as well, right? Like even moral mistakes, Right, we think of those as being yes. like evidence yes. that you're a bad person, and that's people call that like you know moralizing or whatever. Like that's why we shouldn't engage in the normative talk around this stuff. And I think this no, it just means we have shitty normative talk. <laughs> we have shitty moral categories, and we need better ones, right? So that even moral mistakes yeah. are not just you know evidences of uh, you know inner badness or inner goodness or whatever, but instead are exercises of moral autonomy that. Uh, more or less of, you know, so depending upon both individuals' characteristics and the social context in which they're embedded, and are, are an opportunity to rethink those things and to try and make them better, right? Um, rather yeah. than just evidences of good or bad character, you know, simpliciter, and that's the end. Like, that's just way too superficial analyses. And obviously, we're seeing right now how you, you know, when you take that into the political sphere, nothing good comes of it because it's just both sides dealing at each other for being bad. Right. And this requires a lot of patience to let people fail. And it also, I think, requires a lot of respect of the other mm. to respect them that they're going to make mistakes into one, as I said, be patient with them, but to respect that they, it, given the right circumstances, given the patience to make those mistakes, to encounter those obstacles, that they do have the capacity to learn and to grow and to kind of like um, flesh out their abilities in coral, uh, in cognitive and moral ways. 
you know? Yeah. So I, I think that I see that a lot, like, when, I don't know, I, I feel like patience and respect seem to be things that we don't talk a lot about. It's like integrity and courage, these terms that maybe they that we used to hold as really being valuable, and then they kind of got a little bit too filled with their own kind of maybe Christian moralisms, and, and maybe we can reclaim those terms a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking my language. I, I love that stuff. Um, I think we should talk more about that. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I don't have kids. You don't have kids. But from what, what I've seen, no. good parents treat their kids this way, right? They see yeah. even moral mistakes, even pretty bad moral mistakes. Good parents see that not as an opportunity to castigate and to yes. merely blame. Although I'm a blame apologist. I think we should recover blame, but in a better way. <laughs> than the way that we do it in bed yeah. public and that obviously that's like almost entirely bad uh, but blame in the sense of like you know you talk about where you, you just merely blame someone and call them a bad person like that sense of blame um, good parents don't yeah. do that right they do the good I think the good sense of blame is you know holding someone responsible in an appropriate way um, yeah. but they see it as a hey you know what you are capable of first of all they, they want like you know what, what are your reasons like why did you do this thing and how, how could yes, you maybe yes. do better like do you think that's like the appropriate way of thinking about it and could you do better than that and how can we together think about um why you did what you did and maybe how we can do better and you know, involving yourself in it rather than being just an outside divine judge or something like that and so like it's messy and you never do it fully right. And there's always some degree of paternalism. There's always some degree of like um, assuming you know what the other person's thinking and doing. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, rationalization that happens there. And it's all super messy, right? But that that process is the kind of thing that not just education, but, you know, just like social relationships in general should be made of. And obviously, you know, the, the kind of investment that parents have with their children is not what you can expect from every individual to every other individual in the society, right? But like different degrees of that would seem appropriate. And the the problem is like yeah. there's justice concerns here because when your society is really unjust and has these uh, social relations that are just full of injustice uh, and power dynamics and everything else, it becomes nearly impossible to actually in good faith try and instantiate that kind of stuff because it's just ripe mm. for naivete and for abuse and for gaslighting and for bad faith manipulation mm. and everything else. So even if you do want to inculcate these types of virtues in your social relations, whether as a teacher, a parent, or a fellow citizen, in a lot of cases, you almost can't, right? It's almost like being a mm. naive, like, you know, the idiot, Dostoevsky's idiot, right? Uh, or the beautiful soul or whatever. Mm. Um, and that's that fucking sucks, and that shouldn't be. Yeah, it's so interesting. I I had a conversation. I'm just like having a flashback to a conversation I once had, and I don't remember all the details, but it was something about like someone was asking like, you know, like how would you respond if um if I did something shitty in this way or something along those lines. And my my first response was I'd be like, well, why why did you do that, right? Like I wouldn't just come out and fucking be like fuck you how dare you like fuck what, what is this it was more like well why 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 did you do that or why would you have done it did you do it because you were acting out did you do it because you were stressed did you do it because you were angry did you do it because you were trying to hurt me did you do it because you were trying to hurt yourself did you do it because you're bored did you do it because you're um, trying to, to end end a friendship or whatever it was right like 
that's the thing. And then and then that's when you can start getting into some really important things. Well, why did you do it? Did like because then you can start to get to okay, what's really going on here? Mm-hmm. Right? Like if if you have a child and that child um hits another kid at school, rather than just being like, "You know what? Fuck you. You don't hit people. You're grounded for a month." <laughs> well, yeah, that, I I don't think that child is going to learn like you don't match aggression with aggression. That child's just going to think, okay, so when I do X, I elicit this kind of response. And so it trains the pattern of how these are connected, right? You punch someone and then you that elicits anger. And then you know what the child might actually do in the future? The child might then start to learn if this is a pattern of parenting. The child might learn that, oh, when I need attention, I can act out in this way and I'll get I'll get this kind of attention because maybe they're not getting attention. But maybe what they really wanted was maybe what they really wanted was attention. Right now, I'm just like, I'm not saying the kid was being bullied and they were self-defense or something like that, right? Like, let's just imagine in this scenario, right? Maybe the kid needed attention and felt like he or she was not getting that attention. So they acted out by, you know, being mean to another student because then at least they knew that they would get the attention. Even if it isn't the attention, the, the form of attention that their heart really desires, right? Like there's a better form of attention. Yeah, there's a quick form of attention that they might get by being punished. All the teachers, all the students, they're being talked about. Their friends are talking about them. They get home. The parents then have to talk about it. They're the center of attention. But maybe you find out that, you know, another baby came along and that other baby was getting more attention. Or maybe the parents have been working a whole bunch. And so the kid wasn't getting the love and whatnot that they, that they thought that they needed or that they wanted. And maybe they didn't know even how to articulate it in this way. But that's why I think it's so important. And this happens in all kinds of relationships, in romantic relationships, in parental relationships, in parent-child, in parent or in teacher-student. So I think if we can start to really just kind of scrape beneath the surface, we can start to figure out because a lot of times we, we do things that we do because of reasons that we're not always aware of, you know? And I think that's why this is also important. You fucking Kantian, you think you're not, but dude, you do you want you want to unearth <laughs> the maxims, right? There are you know, mere acts are not morally valuable, but maxims are, which involve actions for purposes um, and contexts, right? You also state the Kantian <laughs> dictum that we're not aware of most of our maxims, right? Um, and so we have to actually yeah, try yeah. to unearth them, and even that's a fraught process. So yeah, I mean, that's I'm I'm totally on board with that, man. That's exactly, it. and I mean, for like the child who uh, maybe it's not even that they want attention; it's that they they need to be esteemed in some way. And mm. if they're mm. totally being ignored and not thinking of themselves as being, because the kids don't automatically realize that they're valuable, like intrinsically valuable human beings. They have to have that esteemed through their family. Usually, it's the context where that happens. It doesn't have mm. happen in the family, but it usually it happens. Mm. And if they're not getting that, they might end up with, hey, better to be esteemed as a badass who will beat you up than as nothing at all, right? So, like, mm. fear is a kind of esteem. It's minimal and it's not morally healthy. Uh, but it's a kind of esteem. So you know, that's probably why, you know, the explanation for most bullying is precisely that, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's in all those contexts, it's not just education, it involves every single social context you can think of, where some degree, uh, this kind of attitude is, seems to be completely lacking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It... And I, and I think it's very hard to start implementing this type of um, like communication pattern with people too, because we're going against so many years of, and and I think most of our contexts don't 
They don't teach this type of um, communication. I'm also reminded here of like, you know, nonviolent communication. Oh, yeah. Right? Like that kind of gets to this as well. Um, which a lot of people kind of reduce to just empathy, but it's more than just empathy. It's really about kind of like really trying to, to meet that person where they are and scrape beneath the layers and really figure out what are the kind of like underlying underlying um, motives or desires of the heart. I don't know. Interesting stuff. No, I like that because, I mean, we, we don't need to go down this road much further because we talked about nonviolent communication before, but, you know, to use this sort of, to kind of combine the terminology into the crossover appeal here, like understanding can happen in the context of uh, social relations between individuals, right? Where you can actually not just mm. know that someone is a certain way, but you can understand why they are that way, right? And you need exactly. to engage in communication with them to unearth that because usually they're not even fully aware of it. So it's a mutual process where in in their own sort of self-understanding, as that's increased, um, so is your understanding of them. And then I think dialectically, even your understanding of yourself will become uh, greater in that process. And so that's, again, the sense in which autonomy very clearly in this case is in a relationship is not going to be individual self-sufficiency. It's going to require yeah. communication within the other individuals as like a necessary constituent. I love that. I love that. Like one of the things that that um, they say in Tantra is that your capacity to receive is matched by your capacity to give. And I love this idea because some people you might think that you might be – and this doesn't have to be – this isn't sex, right? This is just about like a, a, a yogic relation with others, right? But you might think that you can receive a certain amount of love, let's say, or affection, um, and, and, and even if you're someone who just sucks, like just say you're like an extractivist type of asshole, right? That just takes and takes and takes and takes. The degree to which you are taking is somehow matched by what you're able to give. So you might even think that you can take a lot qualitatively. But I would argue that if you're just taking, 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 it's because you have like a deficient capacity to actually receive, <laughs> which is probably related to a deficient capacity in your giving. But the more that you're able to give in gift in a communicative relationship, the more it actually opens up the depths of your ability to receive, you know? Yeah, love is a reciprocal relation. It can't be uh, one way, right? It'll be, it'll be um, deficient if it is. You can't just take it. Uh, even if you wanted to give love to somebody, you can't unless they both actively receive it and return it because it's reciprocal, right? By necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that kind of relates here as well, just not just in love, but we might also say in, in other forms of kind of communicative relating, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. You know, love being like the, the maximal version of that, right? But the sort of the seeds of that are, exactly, are existent yeah. in every social relation. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that. Wow, we got well, sick. We got like um, even more off topic than I thought we would, but I thought that was pretty fruitful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talking about fucking the philosophy of education, and we started talking about love, fucking and love and tantra and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's beautiful, beautiful. Um, all right, sweet. Well, let's wrap up the main segment there, and let's get into the final segment of the episode. 
All right, so now it's time for the Sticky Leaves. This is the segment of the episode where one of us gets to recommend something that is giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Troy, what has got you all happy? So, have you seen Pig with Nicolas Cage yet? No, everyone keeps fucking recommending <laughs> this. I have not seen it. Okay, well, I won't... I don't even know what it's about. Okay, well, I, I will, I'll give you a brief synopsis. And I, I promise I won't spoil anything for you or the listeners. So... Um, Pig is a new movie with Nicolas Cage and surprisingly the writer director uh, his name is Michael Sarnowski I don't nothing he's done looking at his IMDB page right now I don't recognize anything he's done he's mostly done editing work and even that's on movies that I have never heard of before Um, so he might be like a first timer as far as I can tell I don't know anything about his history okay Um, but this movie's been getting some buzz lately and if you saw anything like a trailer or even just the the poster for the film. Um, I'm trying to see what that what the what the tagline is. It might be too small for me to see. This is great radio. Oh, it says we don't get a lot of things uh, to really care about. Actually, I kind of like that. Uh, but the trailer for the movie makes it look like it's John Wick with Nicolas Cage. And given that Nicolas Cage has like every five years done a crazy Nicolas Cage movie that ends up being really good. Um, like Mandy, like Mandy, exactly. <laughs> uh, going back to like adaptation, um, it, yeah. it's it's rational to think that oh, this is going to be. Uh, and the setup is it's a, he's a truffle hunter who loses his whose beloved pig gets kidnapped. That's just like the the brief synopsis, the first <laughs> bit of the okay. movie. the The assumption is oh, this is John Wick. Like he's gonna uh, he's gonna like use his hunting skills to hunt down the kidnappers and kill them all and save his pig, right? So it's, it's John Wick with Nicolas Cage in a beard. Um, and it could not be further from that. In fact, I'm almost glad that they, like in, in, a, in a typical studio fashion, portrayed it as this kind of thriller. And then everyone's gonna watch it and be like, that wasn't a thriller like, at all. <laughs> um, be surprised at it because it actually makes me like hopeful about film <laughs> because it didn't end up being that uh, like total ripoff of, of John Wick because instead I won't say anything about what actually happens in the plot but it's a beautiful meditation on on beauty and on communication and on like I don't even know it's it's so it's opaque in like the greatest way that a piece of art can be and that you know exactly what it's about, but that exact thing is like pretty abstract. Um, and I don't want to say much about the the details uh, because it'll, it'll it'll spoil a bit of, of what's great about the movie. But I'll just tell you and everybody else out there that I think Pig is probably the best movie of the year so far. Um, really? Damn. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of, of. I mean, this has not been a great year for for film, obviously. I'm trying to think of anything else. Like another round yeah. is probably like right there, um, and I'd have to think about which one I thought was. I mean, they're 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 similarly effective. I will say that. Um, another round, a little bit more of like a jubilant because of the ending, like really sets a tone, <laughs> right, mm. for your experience. Yeah, Pig doesn't do that. It's, it's very much a kind of a slow burn that that ends gracefully. And not with that kind of jubilance that other round does, but okay. I thought it was a beautiful meditation, and it, and, on, and on stuff that you just never see in film. And again, I'm being abstract here because I don't want to say much about the details, but it's very unique um, the way that it plays with like the the positive affirmations 
that are that are feel good and then also lots of ugliness at the same time and kind of melancholy and it marries both of those without sort of taking a side on on that um in a way that i thought was was absolutely gorgeous and it's i watched it a few weeks ago and it's just stuck with me and visuals from the film that stuck with me nicholas cage's performance is completely out of this world like it's it's the opposite of what you expect the the crazy nicholas cage performance it's subtle oh so it's not big over the top at all. like kabuki like man and mandy he said that he was inspired by like kabuki masks <laughs> so like so, a lot of his facial that was like part that inspired his acting this isn't that no at all. it's it's subtle and it's moving and it's like is there pig violence is there violence against pig i'm not gonna talk about that <laughs> well because i just want to know if i just want to know if i can watch it with my girl because she doesn't want to see pigs get fucking slaughtered and shit oh like i don't think so i mean i don't remember exactly okay. but I don't so think it's so okay yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a lovely right. film, and I think uh, it, I think it's made okay. especially oh, really? for someone like you, dude, because of the way that it it tries it, it really de- develops these um, effective themes, right, and and puts them in, like the the positive and the negative in contrast to each other, and just kind of pushes them against one another, and this really like it's life affirming, but it's also like shocking to thought, and all these like same terms we've been talking about today, I think are appropriate. Um, I'm not just bringing them up because they're in my mind. I think they're actually appropriate for thinking about the film. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously I can't talk. I'm not going to talk too much about the details. But uh, if you haven't seen Pig, no. see it. If yeah, you've yeah. seen it, tweet at Austin and tell him why he's got to see it without spoiling anything about what actually happens. <laughs> All right. I'm down. No, I, I fucking everyone has been telling me. Like constantly, constantly, constantly I've been getting, have you seen Pig? Have you seen Pig? Have you seen Pig? So – um, I just I think it was because I thought it was gonna be like a Mandy type of thing that I was kind of like okay I, I guess I'll, maybe I'll just wait until I'm in the mood for it or something like that but it sounds really nice okay no I'd say whatever mood you were okay. in for another round but this is darker than that it's certainly darker than another round and doesn't have the, the yeah. comedic uh, chops that, that another round had um, no but it's 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 definitely great I think you will love it all right fucking pig tweet at us let us know um yeah as troy said you can either tweet at me personally or you can tweet at us at owls underscore at underscore dawn let us know your thoughts about pig or anything else let us know if you want to um get out of our educational escape room model (laughs) and figure out a way to develop some sort of loving tantric yogic uh societal non-violent educational uh, model and then you can become our ministers of education Dude, there's actually probably uh, a market for, that for stem for stem people right like here's a room <laughs> and there are facts everywhere one of them is true the rest of them are false find it <laughs> yeah and then of course there's like the fucking like hippies that are doing like steiner model fucking yoga yoga fucking transcendental philosophy shit <laughs> which is uh yeah Take your send your skid send your kids to the Waldorf schools, please. Um, yeah, uh, or you can email us owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Um, as I said, we've got a patron account. If you want to support us, please do patreon.com slash owls at dawn. We hope you dug this patron chosen topic. I actually really enjoy it. I like I said, sometimes I, I I get frustrated when I read these analytic papers because they can be just so dry. There's like no fun, there's no poetry in there at all. But <laughs> There's also there's also something really nice about how straightforward and concise they are. And by about like three or four pages in, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm with this. I get it now, you know. 
Um, so, and I'm glad that they're only like nine pages long. Also, that's really nice. Too. <laughs> they're so not always, but I yeah, it's nice when they I, are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the ones that you send me are, and I am grateful <laughs> for you uh, for doing that. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, I think that's pretty much it. Unless there's anything else I can't think of that we have to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidani Americanski. Yeah.